That's Corporal Lee Duncan, and he's looking for something. He's surrounded by roofless buildings and leafless trees, the remains of Flyree, France. The town had been captured and recaptured by German forces at the start of World War I. Finally, it's been reclaimed by the Allies following the Battle of San Miel. It's September 15th, 1918. Duncan is here to see if the artillery-scarred ruins of the German encampment would make a suitable flying field for the U.S. Army Air Service. But he's searching more intently for something else, a discarded piece of German equipment or a, a plane fragment that he can bring home as a trophy. When Duncan spots the German military dog kennel among the ruins, he braces himself for what he might see inside. He does not expect to find among it a living German shepherd dog and her litter of five puppies. Not exactly the Red Baron's flugzeug as far as war trophies go, but Duncan is thrilled nonetheless. Heroically, he scoops the mother and her pups into his vehicle and transports them back to camp. There the dogs are a hit. After the pups are weaned, they quickly find owners among American soldiers, with Duncan keeping a male and a female for himself. In May 1919, after the war, only the male survives the trip back to Duncan's home in California. That surviving German shepherd dog was named Rin Tin Tin, immortalized as the dog who saved Hollywood. The tales of the West will remember best Corporal Rusty and Private Renton From the silent films of the 20s to 50s children's television, Renton Tin was one of Hollywood's earliest, greatest dog stars, and it was all because of the wartime heroics of Lee Duncan. Well, that's one version of the story anyway. The truth is... Duncan was a bit of a showman who did as much for embellishment as a medieval monk with a bucket of gold leaf. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. Depending on which newspaper article you chose to read, Corporal Duncan was swiftly promoted to lieutenant or captain. He was a gun technician or an aviator. In October 1919, not long after Duncan and his dog returned from overseas, the L.A. Times printed a story quite different from the one Duncan would tell in later years. In the Times version, Lieutenant Duncan and his messmates find an adult military dog named Fritz in the ruins of the German encampment and take him in as the squadron mascot. Fritz is later mated to another unit's dog, likely captured in a similar manner in Belgium, and from that litter, perhaps born in the relative comfort of a post-war Europe, came Rin Tin Tin. And seeing as Duncan had already taken the liberty of awarding himself lieutenant's bars before the Armistice Day was celebrated, the story as it's portrayed in this article has the distinct fragrance of pants in an advanced state of combustion. That very sort of truth-optional swagger is what made Duncan a natural fit for show business. And yet, for all the hype and half-truths, Duncan was an excellent dog trainer, and Rin Tin Tin was an excellent dog. 
Together they charmed their way into one film role, and then another, and another, building a lasting legacy that paved the way for the other dog stars to follow in Rin Tin Tin's paw prints. Now, there's no question that dogs have a well-defined niche in Hollywood, but just as Lee Duncan did with Rin Tin Tin's real-life origins, it's easy to sculpt and even distort a dog's image on the silver screen. I'm Bud Bacone, and for tonight's feature presentation, we'll be looking at some of the biggest canine stars in showbiz and their lasting cultural impact in Hollywood and throughout our culture. We won't, however, be screening Reservoir Dogs. I've never seen such a blatant case of false advertising. Showtime! Back, Tales from the AKC Archives. For all his fame and influence, Rin Tin Tin wasn't the first German Shepherd dog, or GSD, to wow moviegoers. That distinction fell to Strongheart, whose 1921 debut, The Silent Call, was held as remarkable, uncanny, and a distinctly pleasing novelty. Now, unfortunately, the film has since been lost, but I've got it right here in stunning 3D podcast vision Shh, it's starting. Uh, okay, I'm not sure why I told you to be quiet. It's a silent film. And there's Strongheart. He's playing Flash, the noble wolf dog. There's no denying he has a screen presence. He's running through the fields and mountains like a professional stuntman, and with each close-up you can see an intelligent sparkle in his dark eyes. Prior to Strongheart and Rin Tin Tin, the majority of U.S. audiences had only seen GSDs on newsreels from wartime Europe. They were just exotic enough that a dog like Strongheart, as purebred and German as Pumpernickel, could believably pass as a wolf hybrid. Oh dear, someone has been killing sheep, and poor Flash has been falsely accused. You know, I pay for a whole seat, but I'm only using the edge. Just as Flash is accused of murder because of his wolfy heritage, post-war American audiences would not have been eager to accept a German dog as a hero. The name German Shepherd Dog was not yet popularized. Thus, reviewers were able to identify Strongheart as a Belgian police dog. That Strongheart was from Germany was a detail his trainer was all too happy to conceal from post-war American filmgoers, as was his original name, Eitzel von Chirurringen. Not a worry. This is the industry that would see uh, Marion Morrison change his name to John Wayne and where uh, Francis Gum became Judy Garland. So it was that Herr Hjulringen became Strongheart. Egad, the true sheep killer has revealed himself to be the 
dastardly Luther Nash, and he's kidnapped Betty, Flash's master's true love. And if I could hold my armrests any tighter, I think they'd explode. Ah, but here's Flash to the rescue. He's wrestling with Luther. He's knocked him into the river. Betty is saved. At last, sweet denouement. Betty's been reunited with Flash's master, and Flash's good name has been restored. He even found a pretty lady dog all as well. Roll credits, and Iris out. Oops, uh, I guess it's a lost film again. Don't tell Criterion. The Silent Call had everything. Action, romance, and a leading man like no one had ever seen before. Which is not to say that Strongheart was the first dog in Hollywood. He followed in the paw prints of Gene, the Vitagraph dog, and of Luke, Fatty Arbuckle's Staffordshire Terrier sidekick. The Silent Call set Strongheart apart, though, with its focus on dog-centric drama and action sequences, and America loved it. The picture even broke the world's record for most consecutive screenings when a Los Angeles theater dedicated their single screen to showing The Silent Call, and only The Silent Call, for 792 showings. Even LA Times reporters were not immune to Strongheart mania. Dog stories will doubtless become epidemic now that the silent call has demonstrated its remarkable drawing power. But it is questionable if another picture of this type will ever reach the same heights. Questionable? Uh, we think not. Throughout the 20s, Rinton Tin and Strongheart engaged in an eight-legged franchise war, and fans loved it. For the studios, accustomed to the foibles of high-priced divas and scandal-prone egocentric humans, reliable, obedient dog stars were manna from heaven. Strongheart made but six films, including Brawn of the North, North Star, and yes, The Love Master from 1924, Better We Don't Ask. Rin Tin Tin would appear in 27 pictures through the 20s into the 30s, including Where the North Begins, The Night Cry, and Jaws of Steel. And so beloved was Rin Tin Tin that even the rise of such an unlikely medium as radio couldn't stop him. The National Biscuit Company presents The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin. In addition to features and movie serials, radio would keep Hollywood's favorite GSD alive from the early 30s through the 1950s, alive being a relative term. In August 1932, the original Rin Tin Tin died in his Hollywood home at the ripe old GSD age of 14. It was sad for Lee Duncan, yes, but by no means fatal to the Rin Tin Tin brand. Soon enough, Rin Tin Tin Jr. took his famous father's place, and nary a fan seemed to notice. Far from the police dog training associated with GSDs, and which had to be trained out of Strongheart, Rin Tin Tin Jr. was trained as a gentle, working actor. So gentle that in the spring of 1936, as a break-and-enter artist stole $500 worth of jewelry and clothing from Lee Duncan's Hollywood home, Rin Tin Tin Jr. slept peacefully. We'll leave it for the studio PR to clean it up.
Through the 20s, these two film stars helped transform American dog culture. First, they brought the German Shepherd dog out of the post-war doghouse. In 1927, GSDs ranked number one in the United States, with more than 19,000 dogs recorded in the AKC stud book. Second, they took the image of entertainment dogs beyond circus stunts and vaudeville tricks and gave them human traits and personalities. Audiences were only too pleased to anthropomorphize those heroes, making them feel less like canines and more like familiar old friends. We'd never do that, would we, Rinty? Oh. Uh, I beg your pardon, uh, Mr. Tin? By the 1930s, it was a good time to be a fox terrier, at least in popular culture. In the 20s, Americans got to know Nipper, a smooth fox terrier mix used in the iconic RCA logo, His Master's Voice. Then came The Thin Man. In Dashiell Hammett's 1933 novel, Nick and Nora Charles's dog, Asta, was written as a female schnauzer. And by the time the story reached the big screen in 1934, Asta had transitioned to a male wire fox terrier. Winning the coveted screen role was Skippy, owned by veteran Hollywood animal trainer Frank Weatherwax. Bookmark that name. There may be a quiz later. Asta became a memorable part of the Thin Man movie franchise. Yet even Asta's star would be eclipsed in 1939. For a nation ravaged by a decade of depression, 1939 produced an embarrassment of big-screen riches. Among them, Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Stagecoach, Of Mice and Men, Goodbye Mr. Chips, and Weathering Heights. Now among its crown jewels, MGM's The Wizard of Oz, for our purposes, the star vehicle for Toto, a can terrier named Terry. In a real-life story worthy of a two-hanky melodrama, Terry began life five years earlier in a less-than-happy home. Terry started life as a nervous puppy, taking to peeing on the rugs. When her original owners grew tired of this, they dropped her off with a trainer and never returned. The trainer was Carl Spitz, who trained dogs for big-screen roles. Soon, Terry found supporting roles in pictures with Spencer Tracy, Shirley Temple, and Mickey Rooney. By the late 30s, MGM was searching fastidiously for a dog who matched the illustrations in L. Frank Baum's book. Though the type of dog isn't specified, artist W.W. Denslow had seemed to draw a Yorkshire Terrier. Still, Terry impressed producer Mervyn Leroy and won the role over a hundred canine aspirants. There's enough making of mythology surrounding The Wizard of Oz to make the film itself seem like cinema verite by comparison, so with a grain of salt we'll cite popular lore that Terry was paid $125 a week to play Toto, a cool $2,300 in today's dollars, and that during production, an actor playing one of the Wicked Witch's guards accidentally stepped on Terry's paw, spraining it, forcing Spitz to provide a look-alike while our hero convalesced. By 1943, another Hollywood dog would emerge with top billing in the screen version of Eric Knight's book, Lassie Come Home. Launching the oh-so-durable franchise was a collie named Pal, trained by a gentleman called Rudd Weatherwax. 
Wait a minute, that's familiar. Winning the coveted screen role was Skippy, owned by veteran Hollywood animal trainer Frank Weatherwax. Bookmark that name, there may be a quiz later. Aha! Rudd Weatherwax, whose brother Frank trained Skippy for the role of Asta in the Thin Man pictures. So continued the roller coaster ride of breed popularity tied to the success of Hollywood dogs. Asta had helped boost the popularity of Wire Fox Terriers, just as Strongheart and Rin Tin Tin had grown interest in GSDs. Lassie, in turn, lent new popularity to the Collie. Then, in 1961, Walt Disney Studios forever changed the popular image of Dalmatians. And that, in time, would create a problem. In 1956, Women's Day published a serialized story by renowned British playwright Dodie Smith titled The Great Dog Robbery. The next year, Viking Press published it as The 101 Dalmatians. Soon after, Walt Disney bought the film rights. Smith was a devoted Dalmatian owner. In 1940, when her beloved Pongo died, yes, Virginia, there really was a Pongo. She and her husband bought two Dals. In time, they would have nine. The 1962 Disney film brought wide attention to the breed, much to the delight of the Dalmatian Club of America. But that was then. In 1986, and again in 1991, Disney re-released the film theatrically, this time with a massive promotion budget and with a full line of merchandising, comic books, stickers, blankets, plush toys. Dalmatians, of course, were never the problem. The problem was that they became America's fad dog. Too many people wanted to own a Dalmatian without appreciating the time, energy, and patience they deserve. The very sort of understanding one can glean from an AKC breed biography. The Dalmatians' delightful, eye-catching spots of black or liver adorn one of the most distinctive coats in the animal kingdom. Beneath the spots is a graceful, elegantly proportioned trotting dog. Dalmatians are muscular and built to go the distance. Originally bred to guard horses and coaches, they became associated with firefighting through their ability to calm a team and to mind the fire wagon while crews went about their work. Reserved and dignified, Dals can be aloof with strangers and are dependable watchdogs. They tend to require a lot of patience. Their energy and stamina make them a wonderful partner for runners and hikers. Put another way, bulletin. Dalmatians aren't for everyone. The very traits that win over thousands of Dalmatian owners prove detrimental to owners and families overcome by the dog's big-screen charisma. So began a heartbreaking spike in demand. Impulse buy owners clamored to find Dalmatian puppies, even where it meant bypassing reputable breeders. In less than a decade following the 1985 theatrical release of 101 Dalmatians, the number of DALs registered with the AKC grew fivefold to nearly 43,000. Roll it, Josh. Yeah. 
That's when Disney announced plans for a live-action version of their famous movie due for release in 1996. It would be backed by a full-blown promotion budget and, yes, supported with more than 17,000 items of merchandise, from Dalmatian-style bedsheets to boxer shorts. This time, the Dalmatian community was ready. Coinciding with the release of the film, the Dalmatian Club of America launched an extensive campaign to warn that this particular dog isn't for everyone. A decade later, one breeder recalled, We enumerated every negative thing about the breed, but didn't mention the reasons why we love them. It was well-intentioned, and it definitely proved that grassroots PR can work, but it absolutely backfired. Caution not to fall in love for the wrong reasons, would-be Dalmatian owners to borrow a yogiism stayed away in droves. We lost more than 97% of our breed registry in the 10 years following the movie's release, though the numbers are finally starting to come back. Nestled not so deep in that story is an intriguing lesson, just as owners need to find just the right dog. Every type of dog needs just the right owner. In fact, after nearly a century of making dogs famous, the big screen had little of substance to say about dog owners. That is, until the year 2000, when director Christopher Guest gave the world Best in Show. Live from Philadelphia, it's the 125th annual Mayflower Kennel Club Dog Show. 3,000 dogs competing for Best in Show. The word mockumentary didn't open a lot of doors for him among the nation's kennel clubs, who may have feared guests would do for their sport what he'd help do for the music industry as part of Rob Reiner's This Is Spinal Tap. While kennel clubs declined to cooperate in the production, guests did wrangle dozens of remarkable dogs and their owners. Renting a Vancouver area arena, guests staged the fictitious Mayflower Kennel Club Dog Show. What Christopher Guest may have known, but few guessed, is that Best in Show would not incur the kind of wrath among the kennel clubs that some had expected. The reason? The film invariably portrays dogs with dignity and respect. People? Not so much. Here comes the cup with Holy Dr. Milbank cow. and uh, Graham Chisholm. Wow, look at the size of that. I've taken sponge baths in smaller bowls than that. Guest did his homework. At one point, he got to tour behind the scenes at the Westminster Dog Show. On seeing the film, William F. Stifle, a former AKC president and then a board member at Westminster, spoke for many when he said, I expect it to be torn apart, but it took a very kindly view. I recognized a lot of people in the movie. Less charitable was Joe Garagiola, former big league catcher who served as color commentator at the Westminster show. After watching Fred Willard's character, Buck Lachlan, who is based on him. Uh, now what is that? Is that that's a, uh, a bloodhound, isn't it? Uh, you know, it'd be funny. I don't know if they can do this. Uh, uh, just an idea off the top of my head. Why did he put the bloodhound, put on one of those Sherlock Holmes hats and put a little pipe in his mouth? Are they ever allowed to do anything like that? Dress up a dog in a funny way? You know, that's uh, it's not quite what the uh, purpose of these shows is. But it would, I think it would really get the crowd going. You know, you know what I mean? Garagiola, a career 257 hitter, snarled, I didn't think it was funny. Ah, so he was the one. Since Strongheart first leapt onto the screen nearly a century ago, 
the idea of the show business dog received its first in a series of makeovers. No longer the comic trickster of 19th century music halls. A new breed of name above the title canines have shown people an idealized version of themselves. Selfless, empathetic, steadfast, and fearless. And funny. From Astor to Eddie, from Airbud to Beethoven, audiences relish the human-like adventures of a dog, perhaps in part because few go home wondering if they're just as nice off-screen as on. Hollywood and TV, meanwhile, have neatly monetized the natural affinity that has bound humans and canines for thousands of years. In effect, they're training generations of filmgoers to pay for a reminder of how important that bond is. And as we've learned from 101 Dalmatians, sometimes even to the point of harm. Still, screen dogs aren't going away. So here's to you, Strongheart, and Rin Tin Tin, and Lassie. Toto too? Toto too? <laughs> and Toto too. Down and Back. Tales from the AKC Archives. Visit akc.org to learn more about all things dog and find bonus materials for this episode. Follow us on Instagram at American Kennel Club, on Twitter at AKC Dog Lovers, and let us know what you thought of the show. Founded many, many dog years ago, AKC is the recognized and trusted expert in breed, health, and training info. AKC is all about responsible dog ownership and dedicated to advancing dog sports. No humans were harmed while making this show.